Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, we will be speaking with Patricia Poza, RN, BSN, MSA, FAAN, System Performance Improvement Leader at St. Joseph Mercy Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ms. Poza will be sharing her insights into the role of nursing staff in sepsis screening. Welcome, Ms. Poza, and thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Let's jump right in and talk about sepsis screening. What a great thing to be doing, particularly in light of the concerted campaign by the SCCM to be looking at surviving sepsis. So if you could summarize for us your experience at St. Joseph Mercy Hospital in terms of fostering consensus about the importance of surviving sepsis and how you went about installing the uh, sepsis screening protocols. So one of the roles that I play at St. Joseph Mercy Hospital is a sepsis coordinator. And actually back in 2004, when the first guidelines came out, we had a multidisciplinary or multi-professional collaborative team that was working on other evidence-based interventions in the ICU. And this is such a significant problem in the ICU with high mortality rates in patients with sepsis, we chose to take this on. And so by 2006, we had gotten consensus with the team, and so there's physicians on the team, pharmacy, nursing, um, quality improvement people, infection preventionist, um, infectious disease, All of those people came to consensus about how we were going to take those guidelines, the bundles, and implement them. And we first began in our ER and our ICU. And that's where I think a lot of organizations focus the initial efforts. Based on the work uh, of Dr. Rivers and his team, finding those patients early in the process and then applying early goal-directed therapy was significantly beneficial in, in their overall outcomes. So ensured that we gain support for the change in practice by having a multi-professional team that took the evidence and put it into practices and processes and policies, initially in our ER and our ICU. Then about a year later, six months later, we said, well, we have lots of patients coming from the floors into our ICU with sepsis, and they often are coming very late in the process. And with that knowledge, and their mortality rate was a lot higher, we said we need to screen, because part of the process we put in place in the ER and the ICU was early identification through screening, every shift, every day upon admission. And so we piloted on a couple units, worked with the nursing staff on those units, and they actually welcomed this process because in talking with a lot of them, they were very frustrated because they could recognize that their patient was changing. They weren't sure why the patient was changing. So the sepsis screening process gave them a framework to say it could be sepsis that's causing these acute changes. And then as a part of that screening process, we put in a script using SBAR, Situation, Background, Assessment, and Recommendations, a script for the bedside nurse when they're called the physician with a positive screen for severe sepsis, what they should say and what they should recommend as treatment 
for the patient based on the evidence. It sounds like a lot of work. I wanted to ask you more about the specifics. When you instituted this program, it sounds like part of it is screening. And were you also looking at the way treatment was implemented? Did you work on education of the various healthcare professionals involved? How did that all work? So as we began in the ER and ICU, that's where our multi-professional education took place. And it was based on the evidence and based on the bundles. So they took that pack, that article um, of the guidelines and filtered it down to, a, at that point in time, it was a six-hour bundle and a 24-hour bundle. And, and so we put those into place. We created some tools to make it easy for the bedside providers to remember what to do. When we initially started, we had a sepsis folder that had everything you wanted to know about managing a sepsis patient, but were afraid to ask. And it was a green folder, and it came to the bedside when a patient was diagnosed with septic shock or met the criteria for septic shock. We didn't wait for an official diagnosis in the chart because there was often delays with that actually getting documented. So when they met the criteria for septic shock that was based on what the guidelines had defined as septic shock, the nursing staff would bring a green folder to the bedside. In that folder, there was an algorithm for resuscitation. We had put together a clinical pathway that said on the first hour, this is what you need to do, then hours 2 through 6, 6 through 24, and then 24 to 72. So that, again, lots to remember. How do you help the staff remember it? Give them some tools at the bedside. And then it also had some other things in it, an antibiotic recommendation guide based on what our infectious disease physicians and infectious disease pharmacists put together based on our biograms uh, in the hospital. So everything you kind of would need to know. And that really helped support it. Now, education, you cannot give enough education. And so the role I played as sepsis coordinator, we I provided some of the education. Some of the physicians on the team provided some of the education. But then my role was to round every day in the ICUs looking for sepsis and looking to see if we identified it. And educating right there if we missed it or if we identified it, did we do all the right things? And if we didn't, based on the pathway, that checklist, talk to the providers, find out what the issues and barriers might have been, if there was some knowledge gap, educate right then. And I did that solidly for two years when we initially started, rounding in the ICU and rounding in the ER to make sure that we real-time found where we might have missed a patient or missed an intervention so that we could intervene right then. Sounds like a lot of work. It also sounds like you succeeded. How how did you measure whether this was effective or not? So we measured some outcome measures, mortality being one of them. Our baseline measure of mortality was 45%, which back in 2004, that was consistent with the published literature. Most recently, the last six months, our mortality for patients who get recognized in the ER with septic shock is down to 16%. So we're very excited. Lots of hard work, but you know what? We've saved probably over 500 lives, and that's what it's all about. That's impressive. wanted to ask you more about the component of getting buy-in. How, when you were first rolling this out, how did you get 
the nurses who were doing this uh, screening to buy into this? How did you get the other members of the healthcare team, like the MDs, like the pharmacists, to buy into the importance of this? You know, rather than seeing it as just yet another, you know, performance measure, to really convince people that this saves lives, like you just pointed out. Well, and again, it starts off with having the right team together that has all the key stakeholders on board and support from the executive level. So we had an executive sponsor that supported this work, and it was the chief medical officer, which was great because there were times we hit barriers and we were able to help resolve those barriers with the chief medical officer assistance. So really having a team put things together. Part of your role on that team is you're representing a discipline, a professional, and you go back to those teams and vet the progress that we're making and get feedback and support so that it's not a surprise when it gets rolled out, that people are aware and have the ability to provide feedback. And then when we rolled it out, we wanted to hear feedback. Tell us what's working, what, how can we improve it. Each of the members of the team, that was part of their role, is that as we were rolling the different components of the program out, we would elicit feedback. What's working, what's not? How can we make this easier? How can we make it better? What, what We changed verbiage on things because it just didn't flow right. So multiple different tests of change where we'd get feedback and then make tweaks. But it's really a, the buy-in was having the staff be a part of that process and the continual feedback loop. For the nursing staff, when we were providing some of the education for the nursing staff, I remember vividly multiple of the presentations that I did to the nursing staff. After the presentation, nurses would come up to me and, and not say, gosh, I don't want to do this, it takes too much time. But they would say, gosh, if only I knew this last week, because I had a patient, that if I would have known this and called the doctor with this information, maybe the outcome for that patient would have been different. So it really was kind of an answer to an issue that had been frustrating for them because they couldn't put their finger on what was going wrong, couldn't communicate it correctly to the physician to get the appropriate response. And then during the educational process, we had them screen a patient, and we timed it. And so when they did the case study and screened the patient, it took less than two minutes. And so they saw themselves that it really wasn't going to take additional time. All of the components of the screening process was data that they already knew or had easy accessibility to. And so it was really just putting it into a picture. It was data that they already had. Can you list for us the components of the nurse's sepsis screen? Yeah, and it's the same as what's recommended in defining a patient in sepsis or severe sepsis or septic shock. So they started off looking for, does this patient have a new or suspected infection? And if the answer to that was yes... Then they moved on to look for, did the patients have any systemic manifestations of infection, the SIRS, the systemic inflammatory response? And if they had two or more of those, then they would move on to looking for new organ dysfunction. 
in an organ system that was distant from where the infection was, telling us that the systemic response had, had caused another organ to fail. And so if they had all of those criteria, the infection known or suspected, the two or more SIRS, and new organ dysfunction, then the patient screened positive for severe sepsis, and they were given what to do and the script to talk to the physician. Now, when we tested that tool, the nurses actually wanted the SIRS to go first because that's the information they knew because that's the vital signs, the labs that they know. And so then they didn't have to go to step two if step one wasn't there. So we reversed the order and we put the SIRS first based on their feedback. Sounds like the buy-in with the nurses was relatively easy to achieve because it sounds like they really wanted to take better care of the patients who had this diagnosis. How was your experience in terms of achieving buy-in with, for example, the, phys- the physicians? So the biggest challenge with the physicians, so the ER and the ICU physicians, there, there really wasn't that much of a struggle with understanding the importance having the right tools and resources and putting in a central line when it was indicated, that was real, was where we got some pushback, and a lot of it was because of time issues and having the right resources, et cetera, and and in a busy ER, not wanting to take a resource away for that period of time. For hospital-wide, the biggest barrier was the fact there were so many physicians so I'm in a teaching hospital, so and we have a hospitalist program. So the majority of our inpatients are cared for by hospitalists, plus we have a residency program. And so it was getting information to them on a timely fashion. And then maybe they wouldn't see a patient with severe sepsis for months at a time, and then they get the call and they've forgotten or that's not they're not used to what the protocol is and so that was probably the biggest barrier is just that so many and to keep that many people up to date on the latest evidence and changes in our processes what was your way of achieving that consistent education of the greater number of physicians so we brought onto our collaborative team, we added people from the non-ICU and non-ER area so that they were part of the development and the message, um, and then asked them, how are you going to educate the masses? And and so we would monthly hit, um, especially our medical residents, before they rotated into the medical ICU, we would give them an hour in service on sepsis. And once, at least once a year, get in front of the entire hospitalist group. And besides educating them and updating them, sharing data and feedback on how well it's going. We also, in problem solving, ended up putting together our rapid response team, uh, a monthly meeting with the rapid response nurses, the chief of the person in charge of the hospitalists and our medical ICU director to problem solve where our issues and barriers were improving communication between the different professionals, uh, RNs and the hospitalists and, and making sure the patients got to where they needed to be. So a lot of problem solving, lots of feedback and continual education. You can't educate enough and most of our education 
after the initial were case series based. You know, so we would present case studies, patients that they took care of, and let them see and intertwine the science in those case studies. You mentioned that you started out uh, screening for sepsis in the ED and the ICU, but that you rapidly expanded to the floor. And it sounds like uh, when patients are inpatients, you screen for sepsis on every shift. Is that right? So we screen upon admission. We're a tertiary hospital, so we might get patients that aren't coming from the ER. They might come directly from a physician's Mm -hmm. office or from another hospital. So we screen upon admission. Or they could be in the ER for an extended period of time, and, and so now they're at a new place, let's screen them. So we screen upon admission and every shift, and then when we're screening every shift, we make sure it's at the beginning of that shift. Most of our non-ICU areas have patient care technicians that are doing the vital signs, so it's important to educate them as well that those vital signs need to get put into the computer so the nurse can look at them and complete the screen within the first couple hours of the shift. And then we encourage the nursing staff to screen any time the patient condition changed to rule out if maybe sepsis is causing that condition change. So again, helping them frame, something's happening, could it be sepsis that's causing these? Take out the screen and and follow that. And they, they really appreciated doing that because it gave them the context then to talk to the physician. And sometimes they called everything sepsis because they'd get a response. But so we sometimes were oversensitive to it, which was one of the barriers from the physician is everyone's not septic. And I get all these calls. And and there was a steep learning curve on the nursing staff in following the screen correctly and and picking up the um, vital signs, not from eight hours ago, but from right now and the labs for organ dysfunction. You can't use a lab from 24 hours ago. So there was a a fair amount of learning curve that we had to make sure that we supported the nurses through that, through auditing and feedback on did they do the screen correctly, and if not, how could that be changed and what additional education we could give them. But then also on the physician end, letting them know that This is a new thing for the nursing staff, and so you need to receive it that way, you know, when they're asking you these questions, and maybe they did it completely wrong. Talk them through it. Sure. And they're calling you for a reason, right? So maybe it's not sepsis, or maybe they screened incorrectly, and work through that with them so Mm -hmm. that they can learn. Sure. What were some surprises for you, both positive and negative? during your rollout of these protocols? and So the positive was they didn't mind the screening because it answered a problem for them, that they had patients that were unrecognized and now they could recognize them. And, and there was specific things that were, was expected to be done. And as our program progressed, we protocolized some things. So most of the interventions on the three-hour bundle, the lactate, the blood cultures, not the antibiotics for nursing, can't prescribe the antibiotics, but then the fluid bolus. We protocolized those because we saw a significant difference in mortality from patients that were recognized in the ED versus the floor 
10 to 15 percent higher mortality. There's lots of reasons on the floor. Mm -hmm. Patients recognize them on on the floor. And we were not unusual. That was what was in the published literature. And but we felt that some of it was related to delay in care and not consistent variations in applying the three-hour bundle, those initial interventions. So we went through our collaborative, we went through our quality and safety group, through medical exec, and shared the stories, uh, and the data and the stories, and uh, got that protocolized. And we've seen that difference between patients that present to the ER or ones that are recognized on the floor, that mortality is now closer to 5% difference rather than the 15 that it was. Nice. So lots of good things. Was I surprised at anything? Probably just that change is hard. Mm-hmm. And this sure. was a big change. And sepsis can affect any patient in the hospital. And other things changes that you're doing you're really doing to a specific patient population and so you have a a specific audience of nurses a specific audience of physicians but this was everybody and that was a challenge how do we make sure we've hit everybody everyone understands and we keep them up to date big challenge it is a big challenge i wanted to finish by asking you if you could provide some take-home points about this topic for our listeners. Recognizing that screening is important. All the literature, even the most recent trials, are telling us that early recognition is a key success factor to a positive outcome. And how do you early recognize and who should be early recognizing? And that's really the bedside nurse. So early recognition is important. You have to create a standardized process for screening. Now, we have an electronic EMR that came in, and there's really needs to be a blend of how do you best use that EMR to alert you so that you can screen those patients. So really getting a blend of using the EMR to alert but having the clinician do that screening you have to have that defined process, and, and you have to follow good change management where you include all the key stakeholders. They're the ones that develop the process and then test it. And most importantly, you've got to audit the process. You've got to get feedback. You have to regularly know whether or not things are being done or are they being done correctly and give that feedback to the staff. Give the results of those audits. Give your overall outcome results to the teams so that they know all that they're doing has really made a difference. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. That was extremely enlightening. And this concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin. Gain implementation strategies for a more effective and lasting application of the pain, agitation, and delirium. PAD guidelines at the ICU Liberation and Animation Conference to be held September 9th and 10th, 2015 at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. This conference is held in partnership with SCCM and Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Visit www.sccm.org slash ICU Liberation to register. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altibates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California. 
and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.